Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. I don't know what you think of when you think of spring. Are there certain sights, sounds, smells, experiences even that kind of signal to you that there's a change in the atmosphere, a change in the weather, a change in the time of year? More than that, do you think when you're thinking about the whole experience of spring that there are certain things that happen which then trigger other expectations. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Um, We know at springtime that there are certain flowers that appear. You can see two of them on the screen here. Anybody? Quiz? Daffodils, Diane? Snowdrops. Like, in my mind, these two flowers are totally and utterly linked. As soon as I see one, I expect to see the other. I often see these on the drive up from T Cross to Llanady, just as you're turning off at the junction there. Normally, there's been loads and loads of daffodils planted there. And so you coming along one day, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you weren't expecting it, but there they are, bright yellow flowers. And having seen those yellow flowers, what I expect to happen for the rest of the journey along that lovely road in Llanady is to see these white flowers in the hedgerows, that if I see one, I expect to see the other. Does that make sense? Um, You might see some of these flowers and associate it perhaps with lambs appearing soon enough in the fields. You might um, see the first, I don't know, frost or something like that, and it will trigger thoughts in your minds. Those sorts of things. Um, we, We see one thing, we experience one thing, and we have these expectations that something else is supposed to happen. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm speaking from nature, but that can be from um, other things in our lives. Perhaps you walk into um, a friend's house and you smell, what is that? Is it, is it cookie dough? Have they been baking? You expect that they're going to be lovely, fresh biscuits available. How disappointed you are when you find out it's just a candle. You feel cheated, don't you? Um, how disappointed you would be, perhaps, or I am, if driving to Llanady, I see the daffodils and I start promising the children that they are going to see loads and loads of snowdrops. They weren't there on this particular day. My expectations were not met. And in the passage that we're looking at this morning in Mark's Gospel, really, we're going to see two of these kinds of things happening where uh, one thing is seen and experienced triggering expectations of something else, but then that something else is absent. The first one is going to be a bit like what I've just done now, an illustration, and the second one really will be the point that we want to explore. So if you've got your Bibles, please open them. Mark chapter 11, the text will come up on the screen as I'm reading through it. It's Mark chapter 11, and we're going to be starting in verse 12. This is what Mark chapter 11, verse 12 says. 
The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, I'm going to give it to you. That seems like a properly random story to have in the Bible, let alone in the gospel, in the story of who Jesus is and what he came to do. In the grand scheme of it, Jesus, feeling hungry, investigating a fig tree, and then apparently getting quite annoyed that it didn't have any fruit, seems totally and utterly random. Let me say from the off, this is not about figs. So if you are obsessing over the figs and the foliage, then you have missed the point. Um, When we think of Jesus, how do we see him? How do we view him? Well, last week, um, Mark chapter 11, if you've got your Bibles open, you can see it here. We saw Jesus as a king, didn't we? We saw Jesus as someone who was supposed to have authority that was supposed to have a rule and reign and respect because of that, someone whose job it was to bring justice and fairness to society. Sometimes we look at Jesus and we see him as king, and that's a good thing. But Jesus isn't 1D. Jesus isn't even 2D, is he? One of the things we probably have experienced as we've been walking through Mark's gospel is that Jesus is complicated. Jesus is uh, complex. Jesus is wonderfully diverse. And one of the other things that Mark is at pains to show us, to demonstrate us, is that Jesus isn't just a king. He is a prophet. Uh, Actually, we'd say that there's three things about Jesus specifically. Uh, The Bible likes to teach us that he's king, he's prophet, he's priest. We're going to be looking at his priestly nature a lot more in the weeks to come. But here is an example of Jesus as a prophet. Now, when we think of prophet, what springs to mind? It depends how you spell it. I've got M's right in front of me, and so I can see pound signs in his his eyes. Um, No, prophet as in the biblical sense of prophet. In our minds, we jump straight to a prophet is someone who tells us about the future. A prophet is someone who predicts things, foretells things that are going to happen in uh, days yet to come. And now, there's an element to which that is true, but actually, if that is our understanding of a prophet, we have missed it by miles. When you go hunting in your Old Testaments for prophets, and you listen to the things that they say, and you expect to find people who are, (laughs) you know, predicting the scores in FA Cup finals and things like that, you end up being, for the most part, disappointed because their lives and their ministries are not filled with giving us times and dates and locations that are going to be um, come to pass in the future. Actually, most of their lives are spent calling people to repentance. That if we wanted to come up with a really good definition of what a prophet was, a prophet is someone who warns people about the dangerous path that they're walking down, warns people about the judgment that will come if they carry on that path, and provides them with an opportunity to return to God and to find favor and blessing and grace with Him. I'm really struggling with this microphone this morning, dear me. Let me try tucking it in behind there. And a part of how they do that is speaking to people, yes, 
But one of the other weird and wonderful and strange things we find in our Bibles is that the prophets don't just speak these things, they live them out, they act them out. That's why if you go to books of the Bible like Isaiah, you find that he spent a year wandering around Jerusalem totally and utterly naked. It's in there, and it's weird, and it's part of what he's doing, um, acting out, illustrating, demonstrating the message that God has given him. You go to other places, and you find this even more weird. Ezekiel and Jeremiah, two of the longest prophets by um, volume of words in the Bible, and they don't just speak out these messages. They act them out. They're like dramatic events. And what we actually have here with the figs and the foliage is an example of Jesus being that sort of prophet. He's about to give a message. He's about to proclaim something. But first, he acts it out in real life. He's acting out something that he's about to speak about. Just like me with my daffodils and my snowdrops trying to show you, trying to put it in your mind. Yes, when something appears, we usually expect something else. Here, Jesus is living out, acting out a really important message. We're going to get to that message, but first let's try and understand what he's acting out. Well, what is the actual point of these couple of verses then? verse 12 through to the end of verse 14, of someone who comes along, sees, um, uh, I want to say feathers, not feathers, leaves, that's what trees have, leaves, sees uh, leaves on a tree, investigates for food, finds no food, and then curses that tree. What's going on? Well, there's a clue earlier in the start of chapter 11 when it speaks about where this is happening. Uh, In verse 12, it mentions Bethany, but at the start of chapter 11, it mentions two places, Bethany and Bethphage. Now, Bethphage, if you knew how to translate these things, literally means house of the early figs. Um, Whether you knew this or not, Bethlehem means house of bread. Uh, Bethel means house of God. Um, Bethphage means house of early figs. So Jesus is in an area where as soon as you see the leaves on the tree, the expectation is there will be fruit fit to eat. Uh, What would be the example in our culture? Would be, um, I don't know, growing runner beans and all those little flowers start appearing. This actually happened to me uh, the second year. I was trying to grow runner beans in Flanderbeer, and I tell you what, there were flowers aplenty on my runner beans. But when I went to pick some runner beans, there was not a bean to be seen. That rhymed, and I wasn't trying to make it rhyme. But that's what is actually happening here, is that Jesus spots the uh, indicators. They're all there, that there's something that he can investigate and expects to find, and it's absent. And that really is all we're supposed to take away from this story, is that the expectation, the signs are there, the signs of life, the signs of fruitfulness are there, but on closer inspection, there's just barrenness. There's just emptiness. It's all singing, all dancing, but there's no substance behind it at all. Now, keep that idea, keep that picture, that acted out drama in your mind as we move on to what is the real point that Jesus is going to be making. Uh, We pick it up in verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. 
He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now there is, I promise you, more going on here than meets the eye. But it's a story perhaps we're familiar with, um, a picture, an image of things happening in the temple which just caused Jesus to go mad. Um, in one of the other Gospels, it speaks about him making a whip to chase people out in this scenario. It's like the one example of genuine, fitting anger in Jesus' life. And we read it and we think, well, yeah, okay, this makes sense. There are certain things which just shouldn't be done in a holy space. Buying, selling, trading. These things are not appropriate for the temple. That's where you go to worship. That's why Jesus is getting angry. Well, maybe there's an element of truth to that, but stop and think about it. There is nothing inherently wrong with the actions of the people in the temple. Um, this is Passover. There is a great number, a great volume of people who have flooded into Jerusalem for this holy event. They all have come with the expectation of being able to come and make sacrifices, and yet some of them have traveled an awful long way. They've traveled an awful long way, so they've not been able to bring a, a lamb or a, or a dove with them. It simply wouldn't have made sense. So they need somewhere to go and buy a sacrifice. They've come from places that um, use different currency to the currency that is used in Jerusalem. So they need to go somewhere to change money. Um, Josephus says that in 60 AD, there were just over a quarter of a million lambs killed for Passover. So this is like a big event. You can just imagine there's so many people there. There is genuinely the need to have some sort of system where people can come uh, get the right sort of money and buy the sacrifices that they need. So we might feel uncomfortable thinking about these things happening in the temple. And perhaps there is an element of it not being appropriate for that sort of space. But they aren't inherently bad things. And that certainly is not why Jesus goes absolutely ballistic, if that's a polite way of saying it. There are two things that are happening that really warrant this response. The first uh, is true enough, but it's kind of tangential. Um, it's the fact that in this, they are taking advantage of poor and vulnerable people. Um, these sacrifices aren't being sold for a fair price. The exchange rate that is being given isn't a fair exchange rate. And so this is a, a place and a space where people are supposed to be loved and cared for and helped. All valuable things, isn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mild, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that aspect of loving your neighbor of yourself is so, so, so not happening here. People are being taken advantage of. And that just isn't right. But the second thing, and the, and the thing that is far more important in this context, and really is primary in Jesus' mind when he um, kicks them all out, is this. Is that the temple is a space that is supposed to be inviting people into a relationship with God. And, and you can tell that by what he goes on to teach them at the end there. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. 
this is supposed to be a place that is bringing people together, and not just ethnically Jewish people, but people from all corners of the globe, welcomed in to worship together the one true God. Now, interesting historical fact. All of what was going on inside the temple in this story used to take place outside the temple, because as we've kind of thought, uh, it was a necessary thing to do. People needed somewhere to come and to buy sacrifices. They needed somewhere to come and change money. And it used to happen outside the temple. And just a few years before Jesus came on the scene, there was an entrepreneurial elder in the Jewish religious community who saw an opportunity that if all this was taking place inside the temple, they could actually start taking a cut of all the sales sort of like 10% off the top for, I don't know, a finder's fee or, or kind of renting the space for you to operate in to carry out this function. But then there came a question. Where inside our temple setup can we accommodate this practice? We want to bring it inside so that we can enrich ourselves. That's the thinking. But where can we put it? It needs space. Um, it, it can't get in the way of our worship. The court of the Gentiles. Um, historians have looked at it and they're almost entirely convinced that all of what is taking place here takes place in the specific portion of the temple that was set aside for people who weren't Jewish, people who were of other ethnicities and other nationalities who had decided that they wanted to come and worship God. So like, just lay those facts out and, and understand, think about what is going on. In the very space, in the very place that God had set apart to welcome people in, those who had already been welcomed in, we're now putting up barriers to shut people out. Does that make sense? The place where we would say, come in, come in from the outside, come and worship the one true God. Those very same people were saying, yeah, but you can't actually come in because we don't want you here. There's other things happening. And they turned out to be you know, detestable things in terms of taking advantage of other people. So there's this cry from Jesus, isn't there? My house will be called a house of prayer for the nations. That's what this space is for. That's what's supposed to be happening. But you have made it a den of robbers. You've like taken it and twisted it and destroyed it. And it is nothing like it's supposed to be. As one commentator I read this week put it, the people who were gathering in the temple, they wanted Jesus to come and to cleanse the temple of all these Gentiles, all these wrong ones, all these ones that they didn't want to join in. But Jesus comes and he cleanses the temple for the Gentiles to make space for those who are on the outside. And I want to ask you an honest question this morning. Do you feel like you are wanted by God? Do you feel like you are wanted and valued and welcomed in the church? That's what Jesus is acting out here. 
is this picture of busyness, of fruitfulness, of foliage, of people coming and going, wow, the temple has never been busier. And yet that thing that is supposed to be doing it is falling flat on its face. I worry maybe that it's your experience or your idea, your perception of the Christian faith, that it is something which is excluding you of coming to church, that it's an us and them. And we do speak about it in those terms sometimes, those of you who trust in Jesus and those of you who don't. Even now, I'm really addressing people who know about Jesus but don't know Jesus. And I would ask you the question, do you feel welcomed? Because this is one of the things we see in this story before we get on to the, really the, analyzing the comment that Jesus makes and what it means for us that Jesus really wants people to be welcomed in. He doesn't want it to be a den of robbers. He doesn't want it to be um, a community, a family that like we like to call ourselves here at Amford Church that shuts people out. He wants it to be a place where the nations can come in, where strangers, where people who don't know him yet can come and find family can find welcome, can find a space and a way in which they can worship God for themselves. That's what Jesus wants. He wants to welcome you in. Do you feel like you're welcome? Jesus has come not just to turn over the temple, not just to tip tables up down, but to do really what is necessary for you to come and to be welcomed in as sons and daughters of the living God. I said we're going to look at Jesus as priest. John mentioned this last week, didn't he, that um, all of a sudden Mark's gospel just slows down. Uh, We don't really know the period of time everything has taken place up until this point, but we know that there's just seven days left in Jesus' life. Uh, And Mark is obsessed with it. The other gospel writers are obsessed with it because that is the important part the really important part where Jesus comes and he dies and he rises again so that you and I can know God and be known by God. Like if we've done something, if Christians have done something in the past to make it feel like you're not welcome, like you're not wanted, like there's an extra special reason why you can't be part of God's family, Jesus comes and he spreads his arms out wide and he says, no, no, I want to welcome you in. That's what his life is about. It's not about showing us. It is about showing us our shortcomings. Of course it's about that and our need for him. But it's about showing us that he has made a way. So do you feel welcome? Do you feel wanted? I'm telling you this morning that Jesus has done everything in his power to welcome you in. And there's a warning then, isn't there, for us who have already come in, all of us, have been welcomed there's a real warning that we are supposed to live in such a way corporately as a church family and individually that speaks of that welcome that speaks of that invitation to others it doesn't take too much imagination it doesn't take being a christian and moving in church circles for that long to think of ways in which we do the exact opposite We might not call it um, uh, setting up the temple uh, as a den of robbers, but we're doing the exact same thing when we shut people out. 
when we live and act and talk in such a way, corporately and individually, that we say, no, no, outside is for you, inside is for us. Corporately, I mean, we do, I hope, try to do as much as we can to welcome people in, to make it easy for people to come and to join us on a Sunday morning, do things not just on a Sunday morning, but other times of the week where we speak about Jesus, where we live out together the good news of the gospel. We try to do all those sorts of things. We have crash, we have Sunday school, we welcome families into the church. That's so important for us so that we can say, yes, you are welcome. Even if you don't act the same way as us, even if you don't speak the same way as us, even if you don't dress the same way as us, even if you don't vote in referendums the same way as us, we want to have you here. You are welcome. We can do so many things in that respect to shut people out, can't we? Tut at people when they act differently on a Sunday morning to us. Ignore people when they come in. Leave them there on their own. It's fine, you can be in the same room, but you can't be part of our family. Scold people because they've stood in front of us or sat in our chairs or done any of those sorts of things. The warning for us is to not act, not to live like that. And I would take it even further, and I would lay this challenge at each and every one of our doors. How do we live the rest of our lives, individually, in such a way that we commend the gospel to other people rather than building up barriers of hostility. Uh, one of the saddest stories I've ever heard another pastor tell me is of uh, a time when he went into a coffee shop that is near their church. And um, he went in, it was during the week, and he was speaking to one of the people who were serving and got into conversation, oh, you know, um, I've seen you in you a few times, you seem to do work, and he explained how he'd come to do a little bit of sermon preparation, because he was the pastor of such and such a church down the, down the street. And the barista shared with him, what well, I, I think must have just broken this pastor's heart. The barista said, I dread working on a Sunday, because all your people come in. And for the entire week, there is no bunch of people that is ruder, more demanding, less thankful, and less willing to give a tip than the people who come in here after they've been to your church on a Sunday. Can you imagine that review landing up on Facebook reviews or Google My Business or what have you? Can you imagine how that broke that pastor's heart to know that his people, through the way they were acting and living in just going out for a coffee, were telling others... Don't you dare come in. Don't you dare be part of our club. They weren't saying you're not allowed, but they were definitely saying you don't want to be a part of this because they just were horrible people. Out of all the people the, these baristas served, these were the worst customers they had. I mean, like, how, how wrong is that? So I lay this challenge at all of our doors. How do we live our lives? How do we live in such a way that when people interact with us, when people hear us speaking, when people observe our behavior, when people open up and share with us, that we don't speak and respond and live in such a way that we say, no, 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 You're out there for you, in here for me. But we warmly invite people in. We make our lives, the church, the Christian faith, something 
that invites people and welcomes people in. A welcome to all, a warning to some. How did they take it? Well, they didn't take it very well. Jesus has been ruffling feathers all the way up to Mark 11, and now he's literally on their turf, and he hits them where it hurts in their prestige and in their pockets. And this is what we read. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. They feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out. It's so frustrating sometimes to read in the Gospels how people interact with Jesus and then just make the wrong decisions. Here is Jesus. He's come in. He's kind of, he's acted this out. He's given them this picture, fig tree, busyness, fullness, foliage, but no fruit. And then he's come to the temple and he's gone, ah, this is bonkers, boys. You look busy. You're doing loads of things. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sacrifices taking place, but there's no real fruit. There's nobody being welcomed in. He's supposed to be a light to the nations. He's supposed to be taking the goodness and the graciousness of God out and welcoming others in, and that is not happening. And how do they respond? Do they repent? Do they learn from that? Do they see, oh yes, Lord Jesus, you are right. We are wrong. We should be welcoming people in. No. They double down on their rebellion and their rejection against him. It's so sad. It's so frustrating. You just think, oh boys, come on, get it. You've seen all of his miracles. You've heard all of his teaching. Listen to him. Remember the transfiguration? This is my son. Listen to him. And they don't. Instead, they plot to kill him. They plot to overthrow him, to to turn him out in the most ultimate way. And my prayer this morning is that as we've come and we've looked at Jesus in the temple, that we would not be like those people, that our response would be one of, yes, Lord Jesus. Whether that's responding to him saying, come on in, Come in, fill this space that I've cleared up for you. Come in and be part of my family, part of my community, that you would say, yes, I want to be a part of it. Even if you've been put off in the past by religious practices you've seen or religious people who you cannot abide, that you would see Jesus and you would respond to him and say, yes, I want to come in. Or for those of us who have come in, and yet we know that we are living in such a way that we are shutting other people out, See how Jesus deals with it. He doesn't, this is like the one instance in the gospel where he doesn't deal with it calmly. He doesn't deal with it softly and gently. He flips the tables, he flips his lid. The fig tree, he curses and it never bears fruit again. It's a strong picture, it's a strong warning to us that we shouldn't just mess about with this stuff. We shouldn't be content with busyness in our religious lives and think because we are there, that is enough. It is not. Jesus says, I want all of that to be done away with. If you kept on reading, he he goes on and speaks about faith and prayer and forgiveness as being the hallmarks of what it is to follow him. Don't be like the chief priests and the teachers of the law who see all of that and say, nah, Jesus, you're wrong. We're going to keep going the way we're going. Listen, 
respond. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that Jesus isn't shy of pointing out our shortcomings. That, Lord, he identifies areas in our lives which are so, so, so far away from what they should be. Lord, that as he went into the temple and he saw all these people getting ready to make sacrifices in accordance with your um, commands for Passover, Lord, his heart broke because he saw that there was not a coming to you, but there was a shutting out of people. Lord, we thank you that Jesus likewise comes to us and he, he sees our lives and he shows us. He shines a light on these areas where it's not as it should be. Lord, help us to be a people who respond fittingly. Lord, if we've got daffodils but no snowdrops, help those things to kind of come back into alignment. Help us to be people who have the fruit of following Jesus. Lord, I do pray for people perhaps who are here this morning who don't know what it is to know Jesus, to respond to Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to believe on him. Lord, I pray even now as I speak by your spirit, you would be softening their hearts. And they too, rather than saying no to Jesus, would be able to say yes. Yes, you are king. Yes, you are saviour. Yes, you have made a way to welcome me into that everlasting family, the family of God. Lord, help us as we continue this morning to worship, to be blown away that Jesus wants that space in the temple for strangers, for foreigners, for aliens to come and to worship him. Thank you that he is willing in himself to do what is necessary to make that space. Lord, help us to celebrate and to be thankful that we are recipients of that, first and foremost, even before we pass that on to anybody else. Help us to glory, help us to celebrate that. In Jesus' name, amen. hope that you found today's message useful and challenging and we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss if you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church make sure to like us on Facebook and lastly check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts Thanks for listening.